Hello and welcome to another episode of the Atlas Podcast. My name is Alex. I'm joined, as always, by Martin. Hello, Martin. Hello, Alex. How are you doing today? Uh, good. Excellent. Looking Glad to forward hear it. to talking about some quite random stuff, I think. Mm-hmm. We've got an interesting one lined up. Uh, and on that note, for the news this week, it's more a collection of news stories and just a discussion of something that's big in the tech scene right now, which is NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Uh, We also have an interview with Steve Ferber, CBE, who's a bit of a a heavyweight in the computer science, computer engineering world. Uh, And then finally, we're joined by our colleague, Mikkel, who's going to be talking to us about PLM, product lifecycle management. Yeah, Uh, so quite a a mixed bag today, I think. I'm particularly looking forward to talking about chip architectures so that's a you know huge uk success story um yeah that goes almost unnoticed so uh yeah great hope. well we will yeah we'll get into it in more detail with steve when he comes on but yeah. one of the amazing statistics i saw was 100 billion variants of what he created have been listed up to 2018 that's that's some serious impact there Serious, and and we talked about IoT before. I know we, we're drifting off, but you know, Internet of Things. Without that chip architecture, Internet of Things wouldn't exist. So, mm. you know, there's a whole raft of things that have come off the back of these uh, the technologies that Steve and Arm and people like that have produced. So, yeah. Mm. Well, yeah. Let's save that. We'll get into it. Uh, for the time being, this is a, a rarity for the Atlas podcast. This is something that I suggested that you'd never heard of before, and that's non-fungible tokens. And I'm still not sure about the word fungible. I love it. It's one of my favorite words. It's got a good nge to it. Um, but yeah, it's it's something that's not particularly new, but something that's been picking up a lot of steam recently. Um, but I guess best way to start is... Let's start with fungible. What is something that's fungible um, and how we can build off that? Basically, fungibility is the interchangeable nature of certain goods and commodities. So, for example, I can give you a a gram of gold, pure gold, uh, and that is worth X amount. Or I can give you a completely different gram of pure gold, and that is worth the exact same amount. They're interchangeable there. So non-fungibility is uh, the property of a good or commodity which is in in uninterchangeable so for example i mean this has existed as long as we've had an idea of commerce but perhaps a famous piece of art is non-fungible because i can give you all of the materials or even a very good replica of that that doesn't have the same intrinsic value as the original piece of art itself um, yes, and that and that was the interesting thing I kind of picked up on there because we're really talking about that that aspect of um, almost status or something like that or value, uh, and it's a complicated subject, isn't it? It's because ultimately the value is in in, in what someone who's willing to pay for it. But if, say if you do collect art, an original is the best, or the first edition of a book is the most yeah. valuable, um, where an original piece of art there is a one-off i guess um and some of the artists have challenged those kind of concepts of um uh, of one-off art i guess Mm. um you know andy warhol famously was taking cans of soup and things like this to try and 
say that, that, that art is not necessarily that kind of concept, really. Um, yeah. But it still exists, doesn't it? The one-off unique thing is the thing that's considered to be the most valuable asset. And we're very familiar with that in a, in a physical world. But it's something that's been missing from the digital world. That's it. It's it's. I mean, prior to these sort of technologies, digital art, whether that be music or visual or um, yeah, moving imagery, is or was. I guess it still is, but in a certain uh, idea, is is completely fungible. Yeah. Because if I give you, if I create a record that's never pressed to vinyl or given its own first pressing, every single copy of that is exactly the same as the first one. So yeah. there is no intrinsic value to it. So what these NFTs do is they take a piece of data within a blockchain and they mark that as proof of ownership. So mm -hmm. it's the first edition of. Uh, and we have lots of interesting examples coming up at the moment with uh, things like the band Kings of Leon. Their next album will be sold as an NFT, a non-fungible token. Uh, a lot of sports, from football to basketball to various different things, players are selling highlight reels or individual pieces of their play tied to these blockchain data, tied to this blockchain data as an individual piece, although obviously it is infinitely uh, replicatable the proof of ownership is not that is unique, non-fungible, yeah. and 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 that is an important part, really, because I think the big problem with copyright, with any of that kind of artistic element, is that the, the copyright is always infringed, and they try to build technologies around preventing that happening. Um, you know, video and music are spent millions on trying to create those kind of uh, copyright aspects to it and then come mm. along things like spotify or whatever it is which then you know changes once again that business model so it's always been a bit of an uphill uphill battle for the technology and art to coexist in that way um and this is yeah i think this is a fascinating approach to be able to using technologies like blockchain which give that kind of distributed ledger approach which gives a unique element to anything within it um, and then tie it to a an artistic um, approach within the digital domain. Um, and I could see many people thinking, oh, crumbs, this is just a bit of a, uh, you know, a fad or whatever. But actually, as soon as we discussed it, and they, you know, like I said, it was news to me, I don't, hadn't heard of them. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I really thought this does actually have a real place in in society because we love status we love the uniqueness of something um mm. and digital suffers from that and the art suffers from that in the digital domain um so why not really you know um is my <laughs> opinion I'm, yeah i'm all for it i have it's one of those things that i'm i'm certainly loath to put any money into because i guarantee whatever i put my money into is going to be the bit that just disappears over a cliff but i will certainly keep a close eye on it yeah i'm not um, sure i'm going to be investing in them uh, anytime soon but that's i guess that's a part of the battle isn't it and i think the other thing yet. that this leads on to which we we hadn't discussed was um the um 
data, you know, data is everywhere. And we, we can talk about the, the World Wide Web and the creation of the web and the, the how information is shared and the purpose of that to share information originally in a scientific domain and then throughout the globe uh, for good or bad, whatever that information is, it's shared. But it's very transient this day, these days. Hmm. Um, no permanency to it, you're right. Yeah, and I've listened to a lot of, um, well, a few few podcasts and things on this myself where they're kind of going yeah we're losing more data now than we've ever lost before so we always look at the positive side of having the information and being able to share that information but the digital age is leaking data at a tremendous mm. rate so where before we'd capture on physical assets um, and, you know, you think of libraries and people go to libraries and see the books or on microfiche or uh, film, to, fish and um, whatever, mm. you know, we're capturing that information all the time. But we're more and more reliant on information being stored on hard drives somewhere. And that hard drive can easily be overwritten. Well, so yeah. all that information is being destroyed continuously every day. And what blockchain is, is a way of creating a a long chain of information um, if you like which is which is um can't be challenged and all that type of thing that's why cryptocurrencies ride on the back of these types of things obviously mm. there are some issues with keeping that long chain of data secure um um which is all around the uh you know mining and basically being able to mine through that data and the amount of power computer power required to keep those um, blockchains um, authentic is huge yeah well what is it bitcoin it's on its own is the same amount of energy as the netherlands i think yeah they've done some and and that's you know and that's because it's trying to keep that history and maintain that history not just of the now but everything around it and making sure there's integrity built into it um, and that's why you can do these things uh, like with these NFTs because there is the integrity built into it. Mm. Um, and it does seem like, a, you know, an ideal use for this type of technology if we're looking to monetize some kind of digital artwork. But, yeah, you can't do that with everything. That's the point. You can't, you can't, well... Can you? you say, I guess the question. Yeah, can, you, yeah. <laughs> can you create an NFT out of anything? Every tweet, every web page update. I just think the the, the exponential rate of of that. So there's going to have yes. to be some kind of control over, or the market. I guess will will create that supply and demand because the cost of creating a NFT compared to the value of it will mean that people aren't just going to create NFTs out of anything, I guess. Mm. Well, it is. I think it's a bit of a digital gold rush right now that people are suddenly going back over. Like there's the the guy who started Twitter. His first tweet is being sold as yeah. an NFT and various things like that. These items that are 100% lost into the digital wasteland. Yeah. I mean, that first tweet is replicated however many tens of millions of times. But the idea of owning that first tweet is now suddenly being commoditized. Yes. So yeah, I think you're right that there will be this this um, land grab of okay, this is now an energy. This is tied to this. This is tied to this, and it will. I think we'll very quickly see a bubble and a burst again. I'm digging mm. my own grave there, but uh, I'm sure some of it will stick. 
Some um, will. Yeah, and I just wanted to finish up because you asked, can you make a an NFT of anything? I thought it would be worth pointing out when this idea first popped into my head and then very quickly slipped back out was in 2017. I saw a news article about something called Crypto Kitties, which are, they were the first time I'd come across NFTs and they are literally little pictures of cats, little cartoon pictures of cats. And each one is unique. Each one is tied to a piece of data in a blockchain and you can put them together, breed them and make other little cartoons of cats. And I thought it was the, a fun idea, but very silly. Uh, and they sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I don't know. I don't know where we are, but I think perhaps maybe uh, we should breed ourselves a couple of crypto kitties and see if anything ends up Atlas themed. And then we can give it away on the podcast. Oh, my word. It's a hell of a world we're in. It is. It is. Um, yeah. So let's, uh, I mean, it blows my mind a little bit. Um, but hey, we live in the matrix. We certainly do. Okay. Well, I'm sure we'll come back to this if there's any other huge stories coming out or if the entire industry booms or busts. Uh, but for the time being, let's jump over and have a chat with Steve. So for this week's Atlas interview, we are joined by Steve Ferber, Professor Steve Ferber of the University of Manchester, uh, probably best known for uh, working on the hardware for the BBC Micro and as principal designer of the ARM chip. Thank you for joining us, Steve. Um, yeah, if you'd like to give us a bit of a background on how you got here, that would be amazing. I was uh, born and brought up in South Manchester, or north edge of Cheshire, that's in Manchester suburbs. Um, went to school in Manchester and, and uh, then went to Cambridge uh, as an undergraduate to read mathematics. Um, during my time as a student in Cambridge, I got involved in the Cambridge University Processor Group, which was uh, a bunch of students who built computers for fun. And, and uh, that led to me getting involved in the embryonic acorn in the late 1970s and everything kind of rolled from there <laughs> that's a very that's a quick appraisal really wasn't it of you, of a, <laughs> there's lots of questions we could ask around that because even even for us it was like the, the the thought of computing and software programming back at school was still relatively something that you did maybe on your own um you didn't really have computer lessons or anything like this so what was that leap from mathematics you, you know the relationship between the logic of a computer programming and the mathematics was mathematics your kind of first love or moved into computing well I, mathematics was was my primary interest through school and you know at a level i was a double maths physics pupil um so going on to uh, read mathematics if you can call it that wasn't much reading actually involved um uh, seemed a natural way to go but i um my route to computing is a little bit indirect so um i, I as a teenager i was very interested in aviation attempted to fly model aircraft um you know with the usual equipment you always had to take a supermarket carrier bag to take the bits home in um <laughs> but, um, but in, in my undergraduate maths course uh, there, were, there was some introduction to, to aerodynamics so i in fact moved to the department of engineering at cambridge 
for my uh, PhD. Um, my PhD was in um, issues to do with the design of jet engine compressors. Um, quite theoretical, so it was very mathematical aerodynamics, although it did become a bit experimental towards the end. Um, but I uh, sort of, and I tried gliding in my, I think my second year at university, I joined the university gliding club, um, but that took an awful lot of time for very few flying minutes. Um, and so I began to think about, well, maybe, you know, one doesn't actually need a real aeroplane to fly. Maybe one can do this in some kind of simulator. I wonder what it would take to build a flight simulator. And, and that was really what led me to thinking about computers as the obvious way to go about building some kind of simulated flying environment. Um, and, and through the processor group, um, I got involved in building computers. Yeah. And at that time, did it feel like something that was a, a, a revolution in the way that it was going to build up to the way it is today? Or did it still feel like a more of a hobby and interest? And or did you talk about that kind of where the power could actually go in the future of these types of For me, it was it was mainly a hobby, um, but it became clear that, that, that this was actually going to have a pretty large impact. Um, because in the early 70s, the first microprocessors appeared. And by the late 70s, it was clear that, that microprocessors were going to transform computing in the sense of taking the computer out of the machine room with, with you know, the, the men and women in white coats looking after it um, and putting it into the hands of, of every, everybody, including starting with hobbyists, because hobbyists are prepared to put up with um, rather less user-friendly interfaces than the general public. But, um, through the hobbyists, it was, it was going to go much broader. And as that developed, um, through my involvement at Acorn, of course, then government interest uh, grew very rapidly. And, and the, the BBC Micro and, and, and um, the government computer education programme uh, began to be very significant. I guess the point at which the potential really hit home was when um, shortly after the BBC Micro was launched, uh, three of us who'd had, had leading roles, which were myself, Sophie Wilson and, and, and Chris Turner, um, agreed to give a talk, a, a lecture at IE Savoy Place. IE is now the IET, of course. Mm. Um, and and uh, Savoy Place had a big lecture theatre, I don't know, six, seven hundred people. But when we turned up for this, um, the lecture was something like three or four times oversubscribed. <laughs> and, and they couldn't, they had to send coaches back to Birmingham because they couldn't fit everybody in. Um, they were completely overrun uh, by the interest. And, and in the end, we took the lecture on tour around the country and around um, uh, Ireland. Um, and, and the huge public interest was, was, was tangible in that process. Mm. Yeah, it's a, bit, it's a bit like today people say that data scientists are the new rock star. It felt like it's having people wanted to come and see you in those numbers. It felt like uh, you potentially were the rock stars of the age. Well, I always wanted to be a proper rock star, actually. But <laughs> I did see the image of you with the uh, bass guitar, which is, I thought was... <laughs> yes, in my student days, I fancied myself as a lead guitarist, but I wasn't really uh, quite good enough. Uh, cut it at that game and and, and playing bass is, is, is a good sort of relaxing occupation for a would-be league guitarist. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, fantastic. Uh, so, I mean, as you've you were sort of there, obviously at the beginning of uh, this ARM architecture, looking at how it's changed over the past few decades. Um, are you surprised by how it's developed, or is it, is it looking now how you expected it to grow? Or yeah. Oh, I don't think anybody could have foreseen the way ARM has gone over the last 30 years. I mean, I suspect the only person who had the vision for, for what has happened was Robin Saxby. Um, uh, but I, I think as far as he was concerned, it was it was more of a sort of a binary business decision that if you're uh, taking a processor architecture to market, um, you either have to make it global or you're going to fail. Um, now, during my last couple of years at Acorn, and I left just before ARM was formed as a company, um, uh, I'd, I'd spent quite a lot of time trying to work out how to set up the ARM activity as a separate company from Acorn, because it was clear that Acorn's market was not big enough to support uh, processor development that could keep up with mm. state of the art. So we looked at various ways of spinning it out. and and. None of the none of the sort of business models that we came up with worked at all. I mean, the you know if if you were going to license a processor and, and try and survive as a business on royalties, you'd have to sell millions of the things, mm. and, and we couldn't imagine how you could get in a position to sell millions. <laughs> right. and, and, well, you realise the irony that, that you know, today we're not talking millions; we're talking tens of billions a year. But yeah. um, mm. so that gives you some idea of, of, of the mindset at the time um, and, and what we could anticipate. Of course, ARM's um, progress over the last thirty years has been, you know, a combination of. Um, very good business planning and serendipity um, you know, being in the right place at the right time um, has enormously helped them and getting the Nokia business in the mid 90s was really the key um, to their explosive growth. Mm. Yeah, it's very easy to look at businesses as they are today and assume the, the, the planning and the strategy that goes behind them is what's won the day but I, I, I think there's a lot of luck or, or just being in the right place at the right time with businesses and it's kind of human minds that think in that way don't they they kind of make trying to make connections that maybe those connections aren't there yes and, and of course arm has, has, has changed as a business um beyond recognition since it started with uh, basically the dozen or so people that, that worked with me at acorn in the arm team at acorn and robin saxby was brought in to lead them um, you know, they started off as a very small company, and they're now quite a, a large international. They're still not a big company. I mean, I think their, their total employee count is still in the thousands. Mm. Uh, they're not in the hundreds of thousands. But um, well, I, I first come across it because it's not our business. But obviously, a lot of tech companies are into computers, cloud computers, or all the different types of an IoT devices and all these things. So, I did go to a, a conference once. Um, which was a arm-sponsored conference, and it was about uh, I think four or five years ago. But I was amazed by it. I turned up to this hotel in Coventry, um, and there's this kind of small group of people that knew each other quite intimately and things like that. And it felt like quite a you know a, a small community working together on these kind of architecture problems of chips. And I was like in this room circulating with them, and I couldn't quite grasp. But maybe it's my perception. 
that these small communities are having so much influence over the world, and yet they're in a hotel in Coventry or something like this. The kind of juxtaposition between the amount of influence they had and the, the size of the group seemed, you know, quite difficult to get my head around, really. Um, but it is quite, is it, is it still that kind of small community that work together on solving those types of architectural problems? Well, of course, I, I haven't worked in the ARM team for 30 years, so um, I, I know the people, or I know some of the people that do work there. Um, and and um, yes, the, the, the key design teams, I think, in, in most companies, even if you go and look at Intel, the key design teams are quite small groups of individuals who have a very good um, overall grasp of, of the problems they're trying to solve, uh, and then um, larger teams of people that, that, that work out the details. Because, of course, there's a formidable amount of engineering that goes into a modern chip. Mm. The, first, the first ARM chip was designed by a very small team. I mean, I, I, Sophie Wilson developed the instruction set architecture. I did the micro architecture in BBC Basic. And then we had, uh, I think, three chip designers who put it onto silicon. And we had maybe half a dozen people in the software team who wrote test programs to validate the silicon design. So the whole team was maybe a dozen people, but that was 25,000 transistors and mm -hmm. just a, a simple single, um, single issue processor. And, and, and today, if you look at you know, the, the chip I'm using in my Mac, uh, the M1 chip, it's 16 billion uh, transistors. So it's it's almost a million times the the level of complexity, mm. um, and 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 the amount of engineering resource that goes into making a chip with sixteen billion moving parts, um, mm. you know, it just doesn't bear comparison with with the dozen people that put the first arm together. Yeah, and I think it's just even that basic understanding of these chips are architected, you know, that you, like you said, to the level of detail and understanding. Most people's, I guess, um, opinion of a chip is kind of, you know, a black thing about the size of a postage stamp with a few legs hanging off of it. And then contained within it is that kind of architecture that you talked about that has been generated over 30 years by humans driving improvement or solving problems within that small postage stamp size. Um, it's yeah, quite... and, and and the design has to be understood in in very great detail. So um, the ARM one, twenty five thousand transistors. It had about eight thousand signals on the chip, um, and I knew every one of them by name, and 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 I knew, knew how everyone related to every other one. Okay, um, now. I suspect it, if you take one of today's chips, nobody knows every signal by name. I mean, I, I think that would be humanly impossible. Um, but if you went into you know, the chief architect at Apple and says, who can tell me how this bit of this GPU works? There will be somebody there who knows the name of every signal in that bit of that GPU. It's, it's just the task is, has to be divided across quite a lot of people because it's so big. Yeah, it's, it's just incredible to think of the power like you said the, the exponential growth of the, the the amount of transistors you can cram onto a chip and also the, some of the technology behind it as well isn't it i mean there's not there's not many atoms involved in a transistor <laughs> no no well the, the m1 is, is is a five oh is it seven five nanometer technology 
which which kind of means that the dimensions of things like transistors are a small multiple of five nanometers, you know, maybe two mm -hmm. or three times that basic size. And you get about four silicon atoms to the nanometer. Crikey. So five <laughs> nanometers is, is 20 atoms in a silicon crystal, give or take. Mm. So, I mean, the chips, the chips themselves are incredible, but they're put to such amazing use these days. I know we, we looked, uh, we mentioned briefly the Spinnaker project. Is there anything else um, that you're doing at the moment or have coming up that you think is a, an exciting use of these incredible pieces of technology? Well, all of my uh, research energies are currently focused on Spinnaker. Um, mm. And, and, and Spinnaker, uh, the machine we have in Manchester, which is currently the world's largest brain-inspired computing platform or neuromorphic computing platform, that incorporates a million ARM processors. Um, mm -hmm. and, and some of the statistics there are a bit mind-bending. So the total active silicon area, you know, when you consider a typical microchip is a few millimeters square, um, Spinnaker incorporates 10 square meters of active silicon area. Um, so it's a, a micro ag aggregated. It's a microchip the size of a, a large wall. Uh, wow! Yeah, and that that that's gone from you know we scaled out of the chip now, and we scaled into uh, you know a million chips all working together. And um, mm. how, how do you know when to stop scaling out a chip? Um, and how when do you scale you know the computer itself? Ah, so so. Um, that's relatively straightforward on, on any given chip manufacturing process the 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 cost of the chip um, has a very strong non-linear dependence on the size of the chip and so up to on, on, on modern processes up to about a square centimeter uh, the chip uh, cost increases proportionately to area but upon, beyond the square centimeter uh, suddenly the manufacturing yields start to fall and the cost per chip goes through the roof. Uh -huh. um, so, um, and, and, and the knee of the curve is different for different processes, but, but for Spinnaker it was around um, a square centimetre. So it always pays to get as much on one chip as you can, um, but it also p doesn't pay to go beyond that knee of the curve if you can avoid it. So beyond that knee, um, scaling in a different way is, is the right answer. And so when you're architecting the, the chips talking to each other, what, what kind of considerations do you have to think about then? On Spinnaker, the key innovation is how the chips talk to each other. And by the way, it's not a million chips. We put, it's a million processors, but we put eight, mm -hmm. 18 processors on the chip. So there are something like 57, I think 57,600 Spinnaker chips and mm -hmm. same number of, of industry standard memory chips in there. Um, but the unique innovation in Spinnaker is how those chips talk to each other. And that's really forced by um, our goal of building a machine to support real-time models of brain circuits. The brain is very highly connected. So inside your head, you have about 86 billion neurons. And those neurons have many thousands of inputs. And, and similarly, every neuron output connects to many thousands of other neurons. So we needed a, connect, a connectivity uh, infrastructure on Spinnaker that meant when the neuron spiked, we could deliver that spike to many thousands of other neurons. And, and that required that we went 
a route that's not usually followed in computers, which is basically multicast communication. So when you set up a, a model on the machine, you configure all its routing systems so that from a processor that models a neuron, each spike it generates will follow a kind of tree path across the machine to many thousands of destinations. And to run brain models in real time, you have to deliver those spike packets in a small fraction of a millisecond. And, and that kind of communication, because neurons themselves have a, a time to communicate or, you know, um, so do, is the same speeds involved in that kind of communication in the kind of biological systems compared with the silicon chips or is the chips actually faster in that communication? The, 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 the electronic communication is a lot faster than biological communication. The signals in your head run around at a few meters a second, whereas the signals in electrical substrates run at a sort of fraction of the speed of light. Um, so, but if you look at if you look at the number of connections in the brain, that's infeasibly high. We couldn't make a machine that, that implemented that number of connections physically. Mm. So we have to exploit the fact that the electrical communications are much faster to send many different communications down the same wires because we can afford many fewer wires than biology uses excellent yeah so what one one payoff there of the uh, of the electronic system is it's moving near the speed of light so uh, yeah of course yeah. That, that that payoff comes at a cost and the cost is is typically energy efficiency yeah mm. um, so what, what kind of practical uh, maybe, maybe this is the wrong question but what kind of practical examples of, of this kind of technology are are being used how can we relate this kind of brain power that you're you're building within a computer and what kind of applications are being used for it? Well, the primary application that Spinnaker was built for is, is brain science. So uh, contributing to our understanding of the brain by enabling us to build large scale models of brain subsystems, even with a million processors, we're nowhere near full human brain capacity. Uh, but we could potentially just about manage a mouse brain, if anybody could give us a sufficiently accurate description. The mouse brain <laughs> is very like the human brain, but a thousand times smaller. Mm. Um, but um, in, in, in terms of how you go from brain science, which is what we designed the machine to do, to, uh, to applications is, is an increasingly interesting question because in parallel with the development of Spinnaker, there's been this huge explosion in the use of artificial neural networks in, in industrial machine learning applications. And industrial AI uses very simple neural networks. I mean, canonically, historically, they were feed forward. So you put an image, you show an image at one end, and it goes through layer after layer after layer, and the right-hand end, it says it's a cat. Mm. because most of the images were cats apparently. Um, <laughs> and, and, but biology, biological networks are far more complex. You never see that kind of simple flow of information from A to B to C to D. There's always information being fed back at the same time. Uh, but we don't understand how it works. Mm. So if you take the outer layer of the brain where many of the higher level functions are believed to reside, we know what the network looks like but nobody can explain why it's like that um, mm. or, or what it's actually doing really we don't even know you know how information is stored i mean we know about synaptic modification and so on but you know if i if i um 
watch a TV program and remember the plot. We have no idea how that memory is represented inside my head so that I can remember the plot the next day. Not that I'm very good at remembering the plot the next day, but <laughs> it's one of the reasons why all the repeats on the thousands of TV channels we have now doesn't really worry me too much because I can't remember it from the last time I saw it. So. <laughs> Let alone the plasticity required as well for learning, I guess, as well. Not just how memories are laid down, but the plasticity of the brain is also... Yes, and of course, in artificial nets, they're trained by adjusting the strengths of connections between consecutive layers. Um, but the brain does much more than that. Uh, in, inside our heads, the brain is constantly rewiring itself. Um, so it doesn't just change the strength of a connection, it actually drops connections that aren't doing anything useful and forms new connections. And, and if, they, if they prove useful, they get strengthened, and if they prove not useful, they get dropped and replaced again. So there's a constant turnover of the connections inside our heads, which makes it even more surprising that we can still re you know, remember some things from decades ago. Mm. Which kind of brings us back a little bit to music, doesn't it? I think that's one of the things that learning a, learning a new instrument is supposed to be very good for the brain, I think, because of the, the level of plasticity, I guess, required. Oh, didn't it? Just, oh so. well, yes, I, I think, well, learning any, any new skill um, has very positive benefits for the brain, as far as I'm aware. This is, going way outside my area of expertise. <laughs> well, we're drifting as well, <laughs> It's not an area where we're as familiar with as you. But um, So I think we've gone on far longer than I was expecting, but what what's next for you, Stephen? Then we'll, we'll, um, from, you know, what is next on this project that's really exciting you? And then... Well, uh, for the last... Uh, five or six years, we've been designing Spinnaker's successor um, in close collaboration with the Technical University of Dresden in Germany. Um, and we have a design for the imaginatively called Spinnaker 2. Um, that, that's Keep it simple. That's actually due to, um, to go to manufacture later this year. So um, wow. in a year's time, we'll have a new chip and Spinnaker 1 is built on fairly old uh, microchip technology. Um, the technology was not especially new when we chose it in 2005. So we kind of have 15 years of technology catch up and that means that Spinnaker 2 will be about 10 times as good in most important dimensions. So instead of 18 processors, it'll have 152. Mm. It'll be about 10 times more efficient and uh, and there's quite a lot of interest in looking at uh, industrial applications of Spinnaker 2, as well as building scalable systems for brain science. Incredible stuff. Well, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Steve. We'll be keeping a keen eye on the story, of course. You're welcome. Nice talking to you. Thank you. Wonderful. And so for this tech spot in the Atlas podcast, we are joined by our colleague, Mikael Garbithu, who is going to talk us through PLM, Product Lifestyle Management, uh, Lifecycle Management, which is something we've spoken about previously, but we wanted to jump in uh, a little deeper with uh, an expert. So thank you for joining us, Mikael. 
Yeah. As long as Mikhail's not going to give us any lifestyle tips. <laughs> <yet>. <laughs> he might be able to help us with a product life cycle. <laughs> yes. Okay, so first of all, thank you very much for inviting myself and to give you a small snapshot about what PLM is or product life cycle management is. Okay. Mm -hmm. Great stuff. So yeah, I mean, uh, uh, let's jump into it. What is product life cycle management? Okay, product life cycle management is the 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 uh, out of the three big uh, information technology systems uh, pillars in the industry is the forgotten system. Okay, so we know that most of the companies, especially of the large enterprises, they have ERP system. MOM, MES systems, um, most of them have PLM. But if we talk with a small medium business, the PLM is the forgotten system. What product lifecycle management is, is a system that uh, controls the life of a product from concept to till the product uh, ends its life in service, okay? So we can control the idea since you start uh, conceiving the product, okay? Then you develop the product, you think about how you're going to manufacture the product, you build the product, and then the product in service, and you have to think on how to maintain the product. So product lifecycle management, what it does is to manage the full chain of the product lifecycle. And uh, do you have any uh, a good example of where where product lifecycle management has helped out um, individual businesses and where the, where you know a good use case to put some kind of substantiation okay. behind what you're saying? Yes, I'm going to start with the with with a smaller example, but they are very crucial and very well described examples. I mean, everybody thinks that when we talk about uh, these kind of technologies, are mainly driven by the large enterprises in the auto area uh, aerospace sectors. But uh, just to give you a, a brief example of a, a small customer we are working today uh, in origin. PLM was applied into the life cycle of mechanical products. But we know that nowadays, uh, products complexity is increasing. Uh, people is creating more uh, sophisticated products. And just to give you an example, uh, imagine a door lock. Mm. Historically, a door lock is a mechanical device. You get your key and you open the door, okay? Mm. But more and more, we are seeing uh, electromechanical devices, okay? Uh, what when where PLN gives a very helpful hand to the companies that you can integrate different technologies, in this case, the mechanical world and the electronics world, into one simple system, okay? So you make the different uh, engineering departments to work together. What's happening in many companies is that uh, they are separate departments. They work like, like uh, independent aisles. Uh, what's happening is once the mechanical department finishes the design, then the electronics come in and then things has to be changed. So it delays the, the time to market of the products, okay? Mm. Uh, PLM solutions were giving the, what they give customers is to speed up uh, that time to market process. Uh, why? Because you do things faster, you eliminate errors, you have traceability of everything you do. Uh, more important, you are starting to make companies work in a, in a, in a concurrent manner. 
Yeah, and some of that new uh, product introduction also brings in a level of, um, if you like, virtual virtual manufacturing techniques as well, because um, we talk about the product as in the product life cycle, but also yeah, we yeah. need to define some of those manufacturing processes and test out those manufacturing processes, and also how humans interact with that as well. And that's some of those uh, PLM tools um, throughout its life cycle, especially in those early conceptual design phases. It's good to try out some of those virtual manufacturing techniques as well. Exactly. exactly. Uh, uh, PLM is a platform that uh, originally was uh, designed to uh, manage uh, product data. But uh, as technology is developing, uh, we are incorporating many other uh, technologies, we, uh, technologies within the, the platform. Now uh, there is a concept called digital twin that it looks like is something new but companies have been using digital twins for many, many years, okay? And as you mentioned, Martin, uh, one of the things that uh, with PLN you can control is once you define the product, is what we call the how the product is going to be designed or the as design model, then you think, you start thinking of how that product or uh, products are going to be manufactured, okay? So you can include this uh, manufacturing digital twin into the platform as well, okay? So you can simulate, I mean, not only the specific uh, manufacturing process, you can also simulate the big assembly line, okay? Uh, there are many tools, uh, for example, uh, Technomatics or Delmia from different vendors where you can simulate not just how the product is going to be manufactured or which production lines, uh, control systems, conveyors, uh, manufacturing cells, but also you can simulate how the uh, operator or the human being is going to interact with the system as well. Okay. Mm. And that's one of the benefits of modern manufacturing, I assume, is, yeah, previously you might have to have wait, waited until that product was at market to get a lot of this feedback, but now you can have that constant iteration and refinement of the idea throughout the entire process exactly i mean you can uh, test everything in a screen before you manufacture any single component okay mm. when i'm talking about manufacturing any single component i'm not just talking about the product it's just uh, before starting building everything any single uh, manufacturing line and on top of this, uh, this the, the next stage is, I mean, we talk the as design, as manufacture, and the next stage is the as built, okay? So one thing is how you define the product. The next thing is how you're going to manufacture this product. And the third step is how this product in reality is manufactured, okay? Because we all know as engineers, uh, you think how to do things in one way and then Finally, uh, those things uh, coming out uh, in a in a similar way, but different components. Or you know, the day to day in the shop floor, uh, you need to use a screw, and it doesn't. There is no more screws in the box, so you have to get another screw. Okay. And for example, in industries like uh, aerospace, it's critical to know exactly uh, which is the component fit into a, an element. Okay. I don't know if you know, in the aerospace industry, uh, you have to keep track of uh, 30 years um, uh, data in order to analyze if anything happens, okay? Yeah, and that's a, that's the next stage, isn't it? When we talk about the yeah. product lifecycle, we, we've moved from that digital twin to a physical product at this point. 
yeah, um, okay. and we still need a digital representation of that physical product um, mm -hmm. not just as it's manufactured which is kind of key because that's is that's it's like its mm -hmm. birth record isn't it and yeah, exactly yeah and different different components within especially if we talk about the engine um, have different criticality um, uh, and therefore you know high moving energy parts need to really have a, a level of what we call serialization which is that mm -hmm. unique identity to it um, and if you if anyone ever looks at the front of a, a a, a engine when they're getting on a plane you see these great big fan blades at the front of them and each mm -hmm. of those fan blades are very very unique and each of the exactly. each of the components that make up the fan blade is also uniquely mm -hmm. identified so you get that complete traceability um using yeah. the plm systems from that kind of final product people look at at the front of a plane all the way through to the raw material that was supplied to make it and that's a part of what PLM does, isn't it? Is it keep that traceability, both uh, backward traceability and forward traceability of the parts are being made. <coughs> yeah. yeah, Martin, yeah, you're Martin, right. You're okay. uh, that's the, 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 the final stage, let's call it, okay? So we talk design as manufacture, as built is the exact uh, component that is fit into into a product, okay? And then we have the, the last bit, which is the as maintained, okay? Uh, mm. It's very important uh, to know exactly which component fits into a product in order for keep controlling of the maintenance programs, uh, keep track of all the maintainability. And even more, uh, we see today that the business models of many companies are changing, okay? Uh, remember that we started uh, with uh, with the software or with the uh, television, no, uh, software as a service, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, we can come in with a jet engine example, okay? Uh, nowadays, the airlines, they don't buy an aeroplane with an engine, okay? I don't know if you're aware, in the past, uh, let's say, uh, British Airways could buy an aeroplane or at least a plane uh, with... Uh, with with a specific plane and you could choose which engine want you wanted to fit into the aeroplane okay mm. now the jet engines are are paid as they fly okay so they don't sell engines anymore uh, the airlines they play by the hour they are flying okay so uh this is like software as a service let's call it uh engine as a service Okay, mm -hmm. so for for the Rolls Royce, MTGs, Pratt and Winnie's, and all that, it's crucial to have track of 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 the full product life cycle. Okay, okay. because they have in order to save uh, money in the maintenances, in the repairs, in order to avoid uh, failures on the engines, uh, they have to have a very good track of everything they do, and if they find any problem. They have to uh, anticipate. Uh, they have to be. They have to anticipate it before it happens. Okay, so that's why a PLM solution uh, gives you gives them the full traceability of the part that is fit in that jet engine. But that part is being manufactured in such a way that it was designed to be manufactured in that way, and it was designed to be, be to behave in the in, in, in the in the supposed to be use uh, use mode. Okay, so mm -hmm. uh, PLN gives you the full traceability. So anytime it happens anything, you have uh, the right um, the right data 
at the right points in order to make decisions on how to proceed and to make uh, two things reduce the cost in the maintenances and also uh, another concept that we haven't talked to is that as you have the as designed as manufactured as built as maintained all the information and with the iot and all the sensors and all the information that we are gathering we can put that information back into the system in order to optimize the designs okay the manufacturing processes and so on so mm -hmm. it's like a circle everything is feeding all the data is feeding each way yeah and one i think one last component of that and something that alex and i have talked about when we talk about a sustainability as well and the future of uh, scarce resources and things like that. So we were looking at like battery technology and the fact that battery technology, how do you reprocess and recycle batteries as a part of that? So I guess the final stage actually is really the disposal or the reprocessing and recycling, which is which is often an area overlooked when you think of the costs associated to products we, we you know we're still trying to play catch up as a as a world in understanding the real true impact of cost um, mm -hmm. and actually managing and understanding disposal um, mm -hmm. uh, or recycling of things is also going to be a key element to the product life cycle management exactly it's key is key that issue because i mean uh, let's the resources that we have in the planet are finite okay mm -hmm. so the more we can reuse uh the less we're going to go against the the the, nat the nature okay mm -hmm. so uh, having all the information on the plm systems uh, will help us to reuse and reutilize uh, different components or different materials in future products as well Mm. And there could be a whole new different business or business models that spring up from that as well, isn't it? I sure. think that's the fascinating thing. The more um, maybe governments and uh, the uh, the external pressures to utilize resources more effectively, the more there will be um, focus on that area, I think. And it'd be an interesting to see where those business models go. Yeah, that's right. I mean, more and more we are seeing that, for example, uh, mainly in the automotive industry, but we are seeing more and more projects in the aerospace industry that uh, the carbon emission has to decrease. So we are mm -hmm. moving from combustion engines into electrical engines. Okay. And that means a lot of investment has to be done in the battery world. Okay. Uh, now the issue is the life of the batteries. And also all the, the, the residuals they give the batteries. So we have to be aware that the more we reuse them, uh, the less we'll we will contaminate the world as well. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, exciting stuff. I, I do like these time of technologies where we're really talking about, it's not just talking, it's doing the do. And these technologies do allow us to, to really encapsulate that kind of information. Um, we did have some chats uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago about the open energy um, uh, structures and forums and markets that are being generated. Yeah. And I, you can really see how PLM can feed into uh, that aspect as well so fascinating stuff um yeah really excited to have you on board uh, and chatting to us about plm and what it can do for people in the future um yes. how about yourself alex you always like a bit of tech around this oh uh, it's fascinating and again it's uh i could sit and listen 
for hours on any of these individual topics and we'll certainly hopefully get to come back around to you because I think as always with the show we've touched on many things but there's elements within what you've said that I'd like to do a whole half an hour on you know but we'll we'll have to come back around oh, thank you very no much it's been uh, great and um yeah we'll uh I think in the industry for revolution, PLM is definitely um, a, a, a key um, technology that was there before, but will also live throughout the industry for revolution. So um, great stuff. Yeah, it's the, as I said before, is the less known system out of the three big pillars. Uh, the good news that uh, people is getting aware and seeing how PLM can help them in order to, not just to improve uh, the products, but to improve the, the businesses and to improve the sustainability, which is very important. Fantastic. So thank, thank you very so much, much for, for inviting us. me. And mm. It will be a pleasure to be back with you. Thank you. Absolutely. Cheers, Mikael. Cheers. Bye. That's it for another episode of the Atlas podcast. Uh, thank you for joining me, Martin. Thank you, Alex. Really enjoyed uh, it. I hope it's a goodie. All, like you said at the start, very eclectic this episode. <laughs> Sometimes we try and, you know, not meaningfully, but create a bit of a theme that runs through it. But this week's is, uh, yeah. A little bit of everything. Smorgasbord. Mm. So I have, a, I have a bit of a left field quote here. Uh, I've gone literary. I've got something from John Keats. Okay. He says, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. Its loveliness increases. And I chose it because I just wonder, will our crypto kitties continue to increase in joy or will they just be a cartoon cat? Oh, like it. That's a good one. Yes. Like we were saying, you know, we still like that tangible, beautiful thing. We do. Um, so, yeah. And in some regards, we regress back through the technology stack to the. I saw Atari coming back, you know. So. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> that must mean it's time for another Blade Runner. <laughs> I did watch that. I watched both of them the other day. Anyway, we, we're not a movie review show yet. No, that's next week for sure. All righty. Cheers, Martin. Cheers, Mike. If you have any thoughts on the Atlas podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at weareatlas.com. Follow us on Twitter at ATS underscore Atlas, and you can like our LinkedIn page found in the episode description. If you want to know more about Atlas products, services, and projects, head over to our website, weareatlas.com, to find out more.